This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. You can call us and go on the air live at 843-525-1859. Or if you're more comfortable, you can call that same number, 525-1859, and simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way. Uh, people also email us, and the email address right here into the studio is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at net. So if you have a question about your study of God's Word or your ministry or as it relates to you know your local assembly and we can be of help, well, by God's grace, we will do our best. So let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet, and by God's grace, we'll hit these questions that have already come in. All right, very good. Abigail emails, I've heard you discuss women changing their name when they get married to the man's last name. Could you please explain your argument for this and any scripture to back this up? Also, do you have any thoughts on a woman keeping her middle name from birth versus changing it to her maiden last name? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, there's not a verse per se in the Bible that says when you get married, you change your name to your husband's last name. But it is certainly, I think, a biblical principle. And last names, uh, that in and of itself is somewhat uh, new in the realm of 6,000 years of human history, but it's certainly a cultural expression of a biblical principle, you know, like Simon's son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah was the way you identified him. Bar is son in Hebrew. Uh, Jonah was his daddy's name, so Peter was called Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, and eventually, you know, we adopted the principle of, of of last names. But sometimes, you know, people are identified like Mary Magdalene. Uh, some of you have been with me to Israel, and we've been to a place called Magdala. And that was the little seacoast town there in the Sea of Galilee that uh, Mary was from. And so she was a single woman, and so she was identified in terms of her physical geographical location. Um, for instance, in the Bible, there are six different Marys. And so sometimes a Mary is distinguished by like Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, uh, to identify them with, uh, their, the children that were famous disciples of Christ and, or Mary wife of Clopas. But in the Western culture, uh, we have, you know, eventually developed this principle of last names and we typically culturally uh, take the husband's last name based on biblical evidences that one, we're one flesh, and two, that the husband's called to be the leader. Uh, The scripture affirms, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and Jesus said the two shall become one flesh. 
So you can't really have two last names if you are really affirming the biblical principle, one flesh. And then, you know, for for practical purposes, you know, let's say you start having children. Uh, does your child take the husband's name? Does he take the wife's name? Does he take some hyphenated name? And if they go by hyphenated names, do so you have double hyphenated names? It just really gets ridiculous. But, you know, even the church, we are, uh, a marriage is supposed to be emblematic, according to Ephesians 5, of Christ's relationship to the church, where uh, he is considered the bride and we're the groom, and we take his name. We're called Christians. We are adopting Christ's last name. Uh, interestingly, um, a man shall leave his father and mother, the two shall become one flesh. But also in Genesis, there's this whole idea, he created the male and female, um, and man was created out of, uh, the woman was created out of the man. And so let me just turn there to the book of Genesis here for just a moment. And there's a couple of interesting passages there that we could consider. One would be, for instance, in um, Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. In the day that God created man, and so Adam, is Adam, is also called Ish in his wife in the feminine form. She takes her name from Adam, Isha. But in some languages, uh, you have uh, a classification of male, female, and neuter. So in essence, at the beginning of creation, when God made them male and female— Uh, He specifically called one Ish, Adam, and he called her Isha. And again, that's because uh, she is a woman and she's feminine, but her name is connected to his title. And and even God says when he created man, or some translations say when he created mankind. So you have these really feminists in our culture today that don't even want you to use male pronouns or, and there are some translations of the Bible, the new, new international version took a lot of verses where you had a singular pronoun, he, and they actually rewrote the scriptural text, and they turned it to they because they felt like they was less offensive and more politically correct than he. And you've got these, you know, Christians today who say, well, we don't want to refer to, you know, man is sinful. Uh, you know, let's let, we don't even want to say mankind is sinful, but God uses uh, a, a masculine pronoun to describe the whole human race, a, a masculine noun as well here in Genesis uh, 5 and in verse 1. So when a person takes her husband's name, she's affirming, one, that they've become one flesh, a new family has developed, and two, she is recognizing male headship. And there's a lot of feminists today that have come into the church and they have tried to persuade women to ignore that application that it's certainly a custom to have last names. So I'm not saying it's a biblical mandate because in Bible times they didn't have last names, but they still had ways in which they distinguished people. And women were typically in the Bible associated with their husband, unless they're being associated with their children or some geographical location, often to distinguish them from another person but they're typically associated with their husband because God affirms male headship. And so being Adam's wife, um, she took Adam's name. Uh, Ish became Isha, 
for Eve, and that's not by accident. And so it's not a sexist thing. It's it's a it's an affirmation that the husband is the leader, and as the leader in Ephesians five, he's supposed to provide, you know, direction and provision and protection and uh, care for his wife in every respect. And so, with this headship, there's not a dictatorship. There are equals, but there are different responsibilities. But people want to obliterate all roles today, whether it's in the family or in the church. And so, we have a couple of theological terms that have come into the forefront in the last 25 years or so. One's called complementarianism, and the other is called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism, which is the uh, term used by the Christian feminists of our day, basically obliterate roles. And there are different kinds of egalitarians. There's full egalitarians and partial egalitarians. A full egalitarian would uh, say that men and women are equal not only in their stature before God, but in their role before God in both the family and in the church. So um, a partial egalitarian will typically say, not always, but typically they will maybe acknowledge male headship in the home, but they will erase it in the church, and therefore women can be pastors and all kinds of things. But most egalitarians now erase all male leadership. And so the church has been feminized, and whenever you um, feminize the church, you feminize the little boys who grow up and Look, if you want to uh, maybe ensure that your little boys are effeminate and maybe have a predisposition towards a homosexual lifestyle, raise them in a liberal church uh, where you've got a woman pastor and where uh, roles are diminished or totally destroyed. But God designed in the family the smallest microcosm of life for there to be a leader. You know, we're, we're the, the American culture this morning is in deep havoc. Our, we had over 250 cities across America last night where there was vandalism and protests and fires and theft and looting. And it's a breakdown of the culture where young men and young women do not recognize that there is authority over them, that they are called to submit. Well, where do they learn that? They're supposed to learn it in the home where the wife submits to a loving leader, and as she submits to his leadership, that's where he learns to respect the police officer, to respect governing authorities. And look, um, in a wicked, vile, fallen, uh, evil government where Nero is in charge, both Peter when he writes 1 Peter 4 and Paul when he writes Romans 13, tells us to honor the king and to submit ourselves to governing authorities. And you say, well, you only do that if they're a good government. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches. And the exception of rebelling against government is when the government does something that it asks you that God expressly forbids you to do. So the government says you, you can't share your faith, and God has commanded you to go share the gospel. Then it's an issue of we must obey God rather than men. So I hope that helps. Um, and in specific relationship to the middle name, Hey, hey! look, there's nothing wrong if you like the middle name that your parents gave you uh, to retain it. Uh, you, you could certainly do that. A lot of women, when they get married, their middle name is dropped. And because they want to sometimes honor their family name, their family origin, like my wife's uh, name growing up was Audrey Hill McKay. And uh, when she married me, it became Audrey McKay Brogy. So in honor of her birth name, her last name, and her last family, she retained 
McKay, but some people, they, they like their middle name, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the issue concerns the last name, and more importantly, whether or not you're recognizing male headship in the home as God affirms. Great question. I appreciate you asking it. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Chris would like to know the following. Have you ever heard of the theory that demons and unclean spirits are not fallen angels, but actually the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim? Like, why would fallen angels need to possess people? And why would fallen angels ask to be put into pigs and then run off a cliff? This doesn't sound right and is very strange to me, but I've seen more support for it lately. I've been through all of your IBS courses, and I'd love to see you finish the other half of angelology. By the way, uh, I just recently uh, wrote a syllabi for Old Testament survey. I've not taught uh, the survey course on Wednesday nights. And with most of the courses I've taught, there are accompanying lectures that you have to listen to. So I did a New Testament survey some years back. But Old Testament survey, I I, I need basically, you know, uh, 39 Wednesday nights to do it. But we've caught some people who have actually caught up with me. And we've got two people who've taken all the courses for credit, and they want to get the diploma. So just last week, I wrote an Old Testament survey syllabi. It's um, we we make up for um, the lost lecture time, so it's not any less work, but it's challenging, and I think it will be edifying. So if you're new to the concept of the Institute of Biblical Studies, I teach it basically on a master's level. I don't correct it on that level. In terms of the papers, I give a lot of leeway and flexibility and freedom, but I do teach it on that level. So if you went to seminary, with the exception of possibly the language interaction that might be in some of these theology courses, so sadly, a a lot of guys are getting seminary degrees today and they have no language training. I think that's a huge mistake. Um, unless, of course, they just want to be in full-time ministry and not be a full-time teaching pastor. Uh, I think the languages are essential. But the Institute of Biblical Studies is a 36-hour course of study, and we have some electives that are mixed in there. But one of the required courses in theology is angelology. And I actually did teach both sides of angelology uh, but on the, I did Angels for Us, and the, the tape quality when I started the Institute in the 90s was so poor on Angels Against Us, it's not online, but I have taught it, and I hope to teach it again. So let me deal with the subject, and, and typically when I teach through entire books of the Bible, there are just natural places to address theological issues. Uh, so, for instance, when we were teaching through the Revelation, we saw that there are different kinds of fallen angels. You can take all the angels in the world that God ever created, and you can divide them into two categories. There's holy angels or elect angels, and there are fallen angels. And you can take all the fallen angels, and you can subdivide them. There are angels that have freedom to roam, to wage war against the people of God. And so Paul speaks of that in Ephesians 6. You see it illustrated in the book of Daniel, the 10th chapter, where there are uh, organized, ranked, demonic forces, just as Ephesians 6 affirms, that wage war against the people of God. Uh, There's a class of angels that have committed some heinous sins of a nature where they are in the abyss. 
And so if you remember on that occasion, you referenced it kind of in a side note here in your question about uh, these uh, angels pleading with Christ. You can read about it in Mark and Luke and Matthew's account where Christ encounters the Gerardine demoniac. So now one account emphasizes and underscores one, no doubt, because he was more vocal and became a, a follower of Christ. But there were two demoniacs and uh, the the legion who represented thousands of potential demons that had possessed these men uh, begged and pleaded that Christ might send them into the swine. And by the way, if you go with me to Israel, we don't do this on every trip because you can't you can't see every site that you want to see. But we've been to Gadara, and there's only one place on the Sea of Galilee where you can definitively say this is where it happened. In fact, when you go to that spot, you can see the actual tombs that go back a few thousand years, and there's only one hillside where they could have rushed down directly into the water. Now, maybe, Lord willing, next time when we go to Israel, uh, there's been many years where you're limited when you go out on the Sea of Galilee on a boat ride. It used to be, well, let's let's go across the Sea of Galilee and look at Gadar, and we'll speak from there, so you can really accomplish a couple of things. You can speak about things that happened on the water and things that happened around the water, and that's certainly one key, vital, critical spot that you can address. Well, what happened this year is phenomenal. They have had just record rains in the Sea of Galilee that for nearly 15-plus years has been low in water, has been raised up to its full height. And so maybe next time we'll even head the boat over in that direction so you can see Gadar, if God will make that possible. So uh, there are some angels that can wage war, some that, uh, you know, pleading with Christ. Why? Because they didn't want to go to the abyss. And the abyss is where they lose their freedom temporarily, (coughs) excuse me, temporarily to wage war against God's people. But as we studied in the Revelation, some of these fallen angels are loosed from the abyss and they wreak havoc on the earth during the time of Jacob's trouble or what we typically call the Great Tribulation period. Then there's another class of fallen angels that are in eternal chains and they will never, ever get out. And uh, they are in a place called Tartarus. It's translated hell in most of our Bibles, but it's a subsection of uh, the Lake of Fire where they will spend an eternity. But how did demons become demons? Well, there's some theories and some really wacko stuff that have been written about demons that have no biblical support. Uh, Some have said that demons are the spirits of evil dead people. So you have a lost uncle who hated Christ and died, and now he's become a demon. So it's kind of the flip side of the false theology that people often uh, verbalize at a funeral. Oh, he's an angel now. He's got his wings. He's in heaven. He's an angel. He's not an angel. Uh, People don't become angels when they die. Uh, God made a fixed number of angels, and they're not still being created. And when you die, you die as a human, and you will always be a human, either a fallen human or a redeemed human by grace. Not to mention, it denies what Jesus wrote here. I just turned to Luke 16, and it's... um, Uh, the event where Jesus describes the rich man who dies and goes to hell because of his unbelief, and the um, poor man, Lazarus, who goes to heaven, not because he's poor, but because he embraces the living God. 
And the rich man, when he dies, he's in this uh, unseen world called Hades. And Hades someday uh, becomes the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 11 to 15 tells us. And he pleads that maybe somehow, uh, you know, a message could come and to his brothers. And Jesus said, besides all this, between you and us, there's a great chasm that is fixed so that those who might want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross over from there to us. So the moment a person dies, for the believer absent from the body, present with the Lord, that's a New Testament concept. It used to be they would go to righteous Sheol, and Sheol, in when translated in the Septuagint or in the Greek, it's rendered Hades, but there are two compartments to Hades. Well, one compartment continues to this day. But righteous Sheol, after the ascension of Christ, was emptied out. And so today, when a believer dies, absent from the body, immediately present with the Lord. But for the unbeliever, he's absent from the body, and he is immediately present in a place of eternal retribution. And he's fixed there. He has no freedom to come and inhabit a person's body. So the spirits of the evil dead, it's just a ridiculous theory, has no biblical support. In fact, it has uh, scripture that would go against it. Some have argued that some demons are the offspring of angels and earthly women. Um, There is a view uh, that I've taught from Genesis 6. You also see it affirmed in the book of Jude, and it's uh, also taught in uh, 2 Peter, and it's affirmed in 1 Peter as well. That there was a group of a group of, um, of of fallen demons who left their proper abode during the days of Noah, and so Second uh, Peter two, by the way, and the book of Jude are like parallel books. Uh, Jude's whole focus is on the apostates. An apostate is someone who uh, walks up to the edge of the Christian faith, never steps into the kingdom because once you step in, you can never step out. You enter into an eternal status with God, um, but they walk to the edge, and then they renounce the faith. And so he deals with apostates. He said, I'm writing, uh, he said, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to you uh, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So Jude says, you know, I was planning to write a book, maybe like Romans, Um, but God moved my spirit in a different way, and he reminds us, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master in Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who uh, end up denying Christ. They were never saved. And then he begins to describe them, because, again, they crept in unnoticed. So there are people who come into churches who walk and talk like Christians, but they're really not. They're phonies, they're fakes, they're pseudo-Christians, they're false Christians, and given enough time, you will usually see that. And so he says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not abandon their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So he's talking about angels here who did not keep their proper domain, but they abandoned their proper abode. 
How so? These angels who fit into that third class I mentioned, who are kept under eternal bonds until the judgment of that final day, where, again, Tartarus and Hades all become a part of the lake of fire, um, we are told that whatever they did was just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, in the same way as these who, in the same way as these angels who abandoned their proper abode, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So he's, he's writing to these people in the first century who obviously have some knowledge about a group of angels, because he doesn't have to explain it, who did something wicked and evil, where they left their proper abode, just like a man who sleeps with a man or a woman who sleeps with a woman. They have denied the way God has designed them, and they've done what is wicked and fallen. So these angels left their proper abode in that, as Genesis 6 says, the Bnei Elohim, the uh, sons of God, uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men. They slept with them. Every time an angel appears in Scripture um, and they uh, appear in human form, they come as males. And so these male angels slept with women. He doesn't say the sons of God slept with the daughters of God, but the Bnei Elohim, the uh, sons of God, slept with the daughters of men. You say, I thought Jesus said angels can't marry or be given in marriage. They can't. Angels don't marry other angels and have little baby cherubs. That's just uh, an expression of uh, 12th and 13th century art, but it's not a biblical expression. Angels can't reproduce and have angel babies. God made a fixed number of angels, but they can reproduce with men. So even in Sodom and Gomorrah, when they're trying to break down Lot's door, what do they want to do? They want to come and cohabitate with these two angels who came as men, and they believed it was a real possibility, and Lot recognized it was as well. So there was that class of angels. So some have said that that class of angels are now demons. Again, there's no biblical justification for that, not to mention that both Second Peter 2 and Jude tells us that they are in eternal bonds they have no freedom ever to wander. They are in eternal bonds for the day of judgment. So that's a stupid, crazy, less than biblical view. The third view is that they were a member of some pre-Adamic race, that there was a race of people before Adam. And again, there's no biblical justification for this. The Bible is crystal clear that Adam brought the chaos into the world when he sinned that prior to that, the creation, the universe was perfect, all that God made was good, and that there was not these uh, race of people prior to Adam. So who are these people? The Bible's clear. These demons are fallen angels, and God does give us the source of fallen angels in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28. 14 times 2 is 28. So those are the two key central passages that described the fall of Satan. And the revelation tells us that when Satan fell, he took one-third of the angels with him. And so uh, Satan is the head demon. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 12 speaks of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And it's a term used to describe Satan himself. So he's the ruler of demons. And he describes hell in Matthew 25 and verse 40 
as a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So fallen angels, the synonym that would be used to describe them would be demons. So that's a great question. That's a short answer we could spend. Uh, if I were teaching that in Bibli- in the angelology course, we'd probably spend two hours just on that subject. But I think I took about 12 minutes, so I hope that helps. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Joseph emailed his question. He must be a teacher. He says, I had a student reach out to me about the book of Judas. I personally don't know too much about it, but by the Spirit, I know that it is false and does not represent Christ. Yeah, there's a book uh, called The Gospel According to Judas, and there's uh, what we call pseudepigrapha. Graphe is the writing. Pseudepigrapha refers to the false writings. And so there are some books that never made it into the canon of Scripture. And most of these books, by the way, were written long after the Bible was completed. But there are some uh, writings that were done even between the two Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, there was a period of some 400 years, and there were some books that were written that shed light on uh, Jewish history that help you to understand some things. But they're not authoritative, and they're not Scripture, and the Jews have never recognized them as Scripture, and the early church never recognized them as Scripture. Interestingly, in the first edition of the King James Version of the Bible in 1611, uh, between the two Testaments, they placed uh, these writings that took place between the Testaments. And if you are able to read the preface, the original preface is the 1611, and it's a good read. It's actually helpful. It sheds a lot of light on the translators and the process that they went through. They affirm that the reason we're putting them here is to shed life light on the time frame between the Testaments and to help understand some things leading up, but they're not authoritative. In fact, there's some false doctrines that are taught in these inter-Testament books. So the Roman Catholics, of course, uh, during the time of the Council of Trent, which met over the course of a number of years between 1542 and 1568, uh, wanting to justify some of the false doctrines that they taught. And one of the key false doctrines that they taught that Luther keyed on, if you've read the 95 Theses or assertions, not a thesis, but a thesis, uh, the theses that he affirmed, they largely dealt with the doctrine of purgatory. And, of course, the doctrine of purgatory is built on a system that you earn or merit salvation. And since you typically cannot do enough to merit salvation, you log some time in purgatory before you get to go to heaven. And so, conveniently, in the book of Second Maccabees, for instance, it affirms what they would consider references to the doctrine of purgatory. But it would contradict what God revealed in the Old Testament and where God has given the full revelation of himself in the New Testament uh, for us to read, uh, it also contradicts the New Testament doctrine, not to mention the centrality of the gospel that man cannot in any way, shape, or form merit salvation. But you can see why Luther would want to especially key in on this particular issue, because indulgences were being sold during his day to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. Tetzel was hired, and he said, every time a coin drops into my chest, another soul 
goes into heavenly rest. Uh, that's in the English version of it. There was actually a rhythmic view in German in which he spoke. Um, so there is no place called purgatory. And so there is books written between the Testaments, and then there are those books that are written after the canon of Scripture is closed. And in the 1970s, they found a book called The Gospel of Judas in Egypt in some cave over there, and um, they wanted incredible amounts of money. It's a codex. A codex is a, an ancient scroll or manuscript that's in book form. And really, prior to that, all of the oldest codexes we had were from the 3rd and the 4th century. Originally, remember, there were no codexes or no books bound like we have today. Everything was in scroll form. But when you read the gospel according to Judas, it's a fake. Uh, In fact, Irenaeus um, basically calls it, he's one of the church fathers, invented history. And it's an appropriate title, of course, because Judas was a heretic. He was the son of perdition. If you read the gospel according to Judas, and unfortunately I had to read some of these books when I was in seminary, uh, and they were sickening, quite honestly, and blasphemous in a number of ways. Um, but we had to become aware of what some of these uh, false works were, were teaching. But the, the basic theme was that um, Judas was created by God to betray Christ, that he had no free will. Well, that denies Jesus' description of him as the son of perdition. He chose to do evil it would deny what Jesus said, that it would have been better for Judas never to have been born. So it's what we call a Gnostic gospel. It, it, it's a, it presents a, a false view of Christianity. It's a forgery, just like the gospel according to Thomas, the gospel according to Mary, the gospel according to Philip, and so on. Uh, it doesn't meet any of the tests of canonicity. And so a question that I'm not going to answer today but you might want to uh, get my little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. And I go through the tests. I go through five tests of canonicity. It's available at Search the Scriptures, or you can also get it um, at Amazon, How to Prove the Bible is True. And I go through various proofs to show that the Bible is the only book God wrote. And included in that little short booklet, I go through tests of canonicity, Why do we have just 66 books in our Bible? Why is the gospel according to Judas not recognized? Well, the test of canonicity would quickly dismiss that book as a fraud. A book that came uh, two, three, maybe 400 years later. It's difficult to date. Most codexes didn't come into existence until the third or fourth century. And so some have tried to date the uh, this book at about 150 A.D., but there's no no evidence for that to say that this was written around 150 A.D. when really the first semblance of codexes we have, scrolls that are you know bound like a book, is really in the 3rd and 4th century. Anyway, it's a good question. Uh, let's go on to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, how you doing, my brother? What can we do to help you today? Yes, I was listening to your sermon about uh, Elijah when you said about King Solomon taking the other foreign wives, that God would, you know, break up his kingdom. So when Rehoboam, right, he said that the, 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 
the Solomon's team would be broken up, not during his lifetime, because because of respect for King David, his servant. So God said that's going to happen. So through Roboam, so if so, the Roboam started listening to the younger younger guys, and his and his king and his kingdom broken up. So God would foretold it to happen. So what what difference would it make if he would have, if the Roboam would have listened to young young men or not? Either way, it was going to happen anyway. If God already decreed it and said it was going to happen, so if you were born with a listen to the young man's advice, that are listening to the, well, the, the elders' advice, still it would have broken up anyway, regardless, because God would have ordained it's going to happen anyway. Well, you're so, right. It, it, was, it was going to happen because God said it was going to happen, just like God can write before the foundation of the world the names of every person who will ever be saved. Well, in God writing that, his foreknowledge, his prior knowledge, prognosco, and there are people today who redefine prognosco to say, well, um, it's gnosis, of course, is the word knowledge, and pre, we get our word before, and so prognosco is foreknowledge, and there are people today who kind of redefine, you know, foreknowledge as God lovingly choosing some people before the foundation of the world to be saved and other people to to be lost or to go to hell, and they ignore passages like Second Peter three seventeen or Acts twenty six five, where you have the same word that's used as in noun form in Romans eight of foreknowledge, but in those passages of God knowing ahead of time something. So God knew ahead of time, for instance, who was going to be saved. If God didn't know ahead of time who was going to be saved, God wouldn't be God. One attribute of God is that He is omniscient. And But does that change the free will of man? And I would say no. Now, some say it was all planned out in the sense that you had no choice and that, that God would select you at all was just an act of his mercy and that God doesn't really love all people, that he loves only the elect and he just chose some to go to heaven and others to be instruments of his wrath. And, you know, I don't think that's the picture that the Scripture teaches. There are people who will be instruments of his wrath and express his perfect justice because of their unbelief, because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to respond to the pre-salvation work of the Spirit of God in their lives. Uh, they put the Spirit of God off in here in the age uh, where the Spirit of God comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, God knew ahead of time that he was going to divide the kingdom but God had a means by which that would happen. Does that mean that Rehoboam was a puppet? No, not at all. He chose to listen to the younger um, men in the kingdom instead of the wisdom of the older elders, and he did something very stupid, and he said, oh, yeah, my, my dad was, I mean, he was light on you compared to what I'm going to be, and, and so the people rebelled. And by the way, the flip side, Jeroboam, God said, I'm going to make you king of the 10 tribes. And if you obey me, I will actually bless your kingdom and I'll honor your obedience. But he was afraid, of course, that if he obeyed, that would mean that people would have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And there was only one place that God had prescribed for his name to be honored in worship. And that was at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he said, no, I don't think I'll do that. I can't believe God. I can't trust what God promised. So I'll set up my own centers of worship. 
And so he sets up one in Dan and the other in Bethel. If you've been with me to Israel, you can go to Dan. It's like a Class A spot. This is the place right here where he uh, instituted the worship uh, uh, that it was idolatrous and in rebellion against God. And you can go to Bethel, too. I've never taken a group to Bethel. I've been privileged to go there before, and you can see why that would be a logical place. You know, God met Jacob in Bethel and had a wrestling match with him. Oh, this is a holy place. Let's do it here. And and so he put one in the north and one in the south for convenience, And and uh, but did was his hand forced? No, it wasn't forced. He could have obeyed God and and God could have still given him a kingdom in the north with the ten tribes and and the people would have still made their trips down to Jerusalem. In fact, that's what some of the people did. So when people talk about the lost tribes, this Bible doesn't know anything about ten lost tribes. That's just a man made manufactured idea by British Anglicanism and other cults like you know, the um, Worldwide Church of God has nothing to do with the Bible. Some of those tribes said, we're apostatizing from the northern kingdom, and we're going to go live in the south because we're not going to worship in Dan and Bethel. So God, knowing that, in no way changed the freedom of Jeroboam any more than it changed the freedom of Rehoboam. God is God. He knows all things, and God has, uh, he knew the means by which the kingdom would end up splitting under Rehoboam, and that's what happened. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Jack has uh, gone ahead and emailed his question wanting to know what is the rationale for the resumption of animal sacrifice during the Millennial Kingdom? Well, let me direct Jack to last week's Bible line because someone called in from Tennessee last week and asked that same question, and I spent about 15 minutes answering it. And it's an excellent question, but I'll just give you the short answer. There's a number of temples and places of worship that God uh, dictated over the course of human history. The first is called the tabernacle, but in a couple of references, it's called the temple. Um, but it was the place of worship. The difference between that and the permanent first permanent structure that God made Uh, was that it was very portable. So God gave some very clear guidelines as to how the tabernacle should be constructed. Uh, Moses came down off of the top of the mount, not only with the uh, Ten Commandments, but he also came down with Sinai with some blueprints, so to speak, of how the tabernacle should be constructed. And every single piece of furniture and the type of animal skins and even how they camped around it was all Um, uh, a beautiful illustration of what Messiah would do. A lot of people are blind to that today because um, they don't see the full picture that God has given us. But when you look back and you see, wow, this is amazing how, how God really by type and picture, by illustration, by direct prophecy foretold all of this. So there was the tabernacle. And then, of course, you know, David thinks, you know, here I'm living in a beautiful house and God's living in a tent. And I, w- I want to build God a permanent spot. And so there's a place today, if you go to Israel, it's called the Temple Mount. And it's not an accidental spot. It was the spot where Abraham met Melchizedek and uh, offered this uh, illustration of a pre-incarnate Christ, uh, a tenth of all that he had. Uh, it's the place where David... Um, 
uh, it stopped the plague by offering a sacrifice. And it's the place where Abraham uh, not only met Melchizedek, but it's also the place where he offered or attempted to offer Isaac. And so that spot is a, a special spot. It's not like, well, we're going to pull this spot out of the air. And there are some people today who, you know, really do a great disservice to the Christian faith, and they try to say that the temple was not on the Temple Mount. Look, it goes against the biblical record, and it goes against archaeology. Uh, some years ago, I think it's been about a decade now, a little longer than a decade, uh, the um, Arabs decided they wanted to build an underground mosque uh, below uh, the Temple Mount there, and so they went in with heavy equipment, and they started digging, and they were dumping all this soil, and wow, what's going on here? And all that soil was uh, brought to a special location, and they have sifted through every ounce of that soil, virtually every ounce. So you can go there today. I brought a group there a couple of trips to go to Israel, and we went to the Temple Mount dig, and it's just that soil, and you can see the artifacts that they gave and found, and these are all artifacts that represent the fact that this is where the temple originally was. Some say, well, it wasn't there. It was, you know, off in the old city of David, and it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, there's a guy who has uh, made that theory famous, and he's done a great disjustice to the Jews and to uh, the Christian faith into the biblical record. I won't even go there, but I do cover that a little bit in my series on the Revelation. But uh, Solomon, of course, was the one who built that temple. David provided the materials, but God said, you've got too much blood in your hands to build it. The Solomonic temple is destroyed, and then another temple is rebuilt, and uh, that's after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Herod did kind of a uh, a remodel of it and really made it elaborate in the Temple Mount on which it sat and flattened it all out. And uh, so sometimes we speak of the Herodian Temple, which is really the Zerubbabel Temple fixed up, but some would number that as three, but most would call it two. Um, and then, of course, just as Jesus prophesied in 70 AD, that was destroyed by the Romans uh, when the disciples said, Lord, look at that beautiful temple one day. Uh, this is the on Wednesday before he was crucified on Friday. He said, you know, there's coming a time that one not one stone is going to stand upon another on that temple. What? And, of course, that's what happened in 70 AD. And, of course, when it was set on, te- on fire, uh, all the gold and place, everything was overlaid with gold. It all melted and went between the rocks. And they literally had to pry apart the rocks to get the gold. And there was a literal fulfillment of prophecy Uh, for that. Now there's coming another temple, and it's the temple that the Antichrist is going to use. If you go to Israel with me, um, most times we go to a place called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a a group of Jewish Orthodox men who believe that God has ordained another temple to be rebuilt. They have all the uh, plans uh, to rebuild it. They have reconstructed all of the furniture with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant, and they've not reconstructed that because they say they know precisely where it is uh, through two credible rabbinical uh, men, two rabbis who've been dead for a long time, but they said, no, we've seen it. It's right under this section, and they know exactly where it is, so they haven't reproduced it, but they've reproduced it right down to a $20 million menorah. Just like God said, it's really remarkable. And just uh, 
just a few uh, days ago, uh, they were sacrificing outside of the city of Jerusalem in honor of uh, Pentecost. Pentecost, we think of it in terms of a New Testament uh, festival, but it's actually an Old Testament festival that was seeing its ultimate fulfillment on the day the Spirit of God came and the church was born. So these men are prepared. That temple is going to be built. Some say, well, it's Antichrist temple. Actually, God calls it his holy place. So he's going to recognize it. And it's in that holy place that the Antichrist will make himself out to be God. That will eventually be destroyed. And then a new temple, another temple, a fourth temple, will be built. So there's the there's tabernacle, which in a couple of places is called a temple. But then there's the first permanent structure Solomon built. Number two, the Zerubbabel temple. Uh, and we'll include in that Herod's remake. Third, the Antichrist temple. And fourth, uh, the Millennial temple. Now, the the dimensions of the Millennial temple won't even fit on the Temple Mount. It's much bigger. Uh, much It's huge. But remember, when Christ comes back, he's going to re- do a remake on the planet and the geography. And the whole earth is going to be changed. And it's going to be prepared for his thousand-year reign. And during the millennial temple, there will be sacrifice. And so in the last Bible line, I go through, but let me just give you the 30-second answer. Just like the Lord's table is used reflectively to look back and to remember and to instruct what we believe and what we confess, that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again, and is coming again. And so those truths are affirmed at the Lord's table. Even so, um, through these millennial sacrifices, they will be instructive of all that Jesus did accomplish. And again, the tabernacle is absolutely amazing, as is the temple in the way it was uh, put together and all that it symbolized concerning the personal work of Christ. But remember, there'll be unbelievers who will be born during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So tribulation saints who enter into uh, the kingdom in their natural bodies will be able to procreate during the millennium. And the curse will be lifted off the creation And so a man's life is compared to the life of a tree. And if a man lived only to be a hundred under the sovereign judicial theocratic reign of Christ, he is considered cursed because he's obviously come under severe discipline to have his life smushed out at the age of a hundred. But they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and each of them will need to make decisions for Christ. And part of the whole system, and it won't be identical to the Mosaic system, but there will be some parallels will be instructive to teach and for men and women to make decisions about Jesus. And of course we know the end of the story because revelation tells us not all will make a decision. Good question, but listen to the last Bible line. Okay. We've got about four and a half minutes and James needs a Bible replacement and would like to know what Bible would you recommend for study? He uses the King James version, but was wondering, would you recommend the new American standard? I would recommend the New American Standard. I think it's um, one of the most precise English translations that's available to us. That's not to dismiss other translations. And I never really want to cast a negative view. So even like when the NIV came out in 1984, it was, um, you know, a, a helpful translation, but it was not as precise as the NASB. Uh, it had a lot of paraphrasing that went in it. And so when you paraphrase, you are interpreting. So like in Romans 8, it talks about he does something. Well, who's the he? Well, from the prior verse, it says the Spirit. 
But in the NIV, they take that pronoun he and they say the spirit. Well, does the he refer to the spirit? Yes. But did God write the spirit? No, he wrote he. And so I think it's best to keep it as literal as possible because it causes people to think and to reflect. But when you paraphrase, you lose too some of the fine nuance. And the NIV paraphrases in a lot of places where, again, if you're not a Bible teacher and you're a pastor who just gets up and you read a text and you don't really teach the text verse by verse by verse, um, people won't see the difference. But if you actually start teaching the text and you prepare that way, and I think there's a need for that, and I think that's modeled for us within the Scripture, what we call expository preaching, that's how people grow. That's how people mature, and that's been jettisoned. But it's not by accident that even on this radio station, John MacArthur uses the New American Standard. David Jeremiah uses the New American Standard. Tony Evans uses the New American Standard. Erwin Lutzer uses the New American Standard. Carl Brogy uses the New American Standard. Why? Because we're teaching verse by verse the text, and we recognize the beauty of it. Now, there is the Lockman Foundation just recently, in the last 60 days or so, has decided that they're going to come out um, with a a new translation. It won't be called the New American Standard. I think um, uh, I can't remember the name, the title that they've given it. Um, It's virtually going to be the NASB, except um, it won't be... Uh, when it says the Lord, like when if you read the introduction to the, I mean, the preface to the New American Standard, you'll see there's times when Lord is capital L, small letter O-R-D, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or G, small letter O-D, capital G, capital O, capital D, to distinguish which Hebrew name for God is used. If you were using the American Standard Version of the um, uh, what, what became the New American Standard, when you came to capital L-O-R-D, which is Y-H-W-H, that we usually vocalize Yahweh, uh, they wrote Jehovah. Um, in the edition that came out in the 1950s that became the New American Standard that was updated in the 70s and the last, I think, in 96 or whatever, um, they put Lord. And so in the new translation, uh, it's going to say Yahweh. Um, and they're going to distinguish between uh, bondservant and slave. And so some really minor differences Um, And I expect that that will be uh, a popular translation for Bible expositors as well. But right now, that translation is some years away. I'd go ahead and I'd get myself a good New American Standard with uh, cross-reference marginal notes that you will find is a useful tool uh, in your study of God's Word. Well, we're out of time, but we're so glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. God bless you as you walk with Him.